Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop update on cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations, and I do want to particularly highlight the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation, and you'll be hearing later from their CEO in terms of their what they all, they can offer all of you on this call today. And many of you may be familiar with them already, so that's terrific as well. Um, we have on the call today um, really over 416 participants, so there are a lot of you on the call today, and you're from all over the United States, from different parts of the country, from rural and urban and suburban areas, and we also have international participants from China, India, and United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by Seattle Genetics, and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have the best, the wonderful speakers today on the program. Today, I want to, I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephen Hurwitz. Dr. Hurwitz is Associate Attending, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Associate Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell College of Medicine. And Dr. Horowitz is going to present overview of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, standard of care, new and emerging treatment approaches, and key questions in communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Horowitz, to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Horowitz. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's a pleasure uh, to join you all today. And um, I'm going to start with sort of an introduction to cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, and then um, my friend and colleague Julie Vos is going to talk a little more about some of the newer treatments, which are which are quite exciting. Um, it's a little bit of a complicated area, so um, some of you may know a lot about this, but I'd like to start with some basic definitions uh, so we're all on the same page. Basically, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma um, is a form of a, of a cancer of a white blood cell. Uh, we all have normal white blood cells in our body, and if one type of white blood cell called a lymphocyte becomes a cancer, starts growing, reproducing itself over and over again, we call that a lymphoma. Normal lymphocytes in our body are generally B cells, like B as in boy, T cells, T as in Tom, or something called an NK cell. And if a normal B cell becomes a lymphoma, we call that a B cell lymphoma. And if a normal T cell becomes a lymphoma, we call that a T cell lymphoma. And that kind of puts you in a general ballpark. But even among the T cell lymphomas, there's more than 20 different subtypes. And there's a group of diseases we sort of lump together uh, calling cutaneous T cell lymphoma. Cutaneous means skin. Um, and the most common type of that is a disease called mycosis fungoides, which is a very specific subtype of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and most people who have a diagnosis of CTCL have mycosis fungoides. When those cells are prominent in the blood, but similar cells, though not exactly the same cells, it gets the name Cesare or Cesare syndrome, and that's um, sort of a different stage and a slightly different form of that. And then there's a number of other subtypes of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, which are even less common than mycosis fungoides or Cesare syndrome. And I won't talk a ton about those today unless there's specific questions, but they have names like subcutaneous paniculitis like T-cell lymphoma, gamma delta T-cell lymphoma, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, and there's a, a bunch of those different subtypes. Um, 
In addition, there are some systemic or T-cell lymphomas that tend to start in lymph nodes or in the body that may secondarily go to the skin, and uh, we don't typically refer to those as CTCL. So most of the time when we're talking about CTCL, we're really talking about mycosis fungoides uh, or Cesare syndrome. This diseases or these diseases, for the most part, are usually what we call indolent or slow-growing, meaning they would start in the skin and they could uh, maybe get worse or not over a long time, like many years. Uh, it's a very rare or uncommon lymphoma, and sometimes it's pretty tricky to diagnose. And the only way to reliably diagnose this is through a skin biopsy. And it is common for patients to sometimes need multiple biopsies, sometimes over time, to really pin down or have your doctor or your doctor with the pathologist be quite confident uh, in the diagnosis. Um, that's frustrating and tedious and kind of scary. But for the most part, trying to get to the most accurate or most specific diagnosis is time well spent, even if it requires multiple biopsies. Um, this is particularly a problem when the disease may be very minimal or people have sort of minimal amounts of involvement on the skin where there's not a lot of abnormal cells in the biopsy for the pathologist to look at or do uh, additional testing. But again, it's really critical, if possible, to get the best or most specific diagnosis prior to uh, embarking on a course of therapy. Um, sometimes the doctors just can't tell. And if it's very minimal on the skin, it's okay then to wait and give it a little more time for it to become more developed or more clear. Um, while we don't want to miss a diagnosis of CTCL, we also don't want to assign that diagnosis too early if someone doesn't really have this. And I think what's really um, sometimes hard to believe or hard to understand for patients is even though we have all these um, techniques to look at the cells, look at the DNA inside the cells, look at the markers on the cell surface, there are times where despite everyone's best efforts, you may highly suspect or be suspicious, but you can't be 100% sure of the type of lymphoma you have or even that it really is lymphoma. And that often is a difficult situation which requires some um, fairly detailed conversations between the doctors and the patients explaining what we know and what we don't know. And sometimes you have to make a plan based on your best available information, even if you're not 100% sure. And even with all our technology today, that, that still can happen uh, from time to time. So in terms of looping in things like communicating with your healthcare team, what I suggest for people, particularly who have a new diagnosis, is that they really understand the name. And I usually like the name to be more specific than just CTCL because, again, that to describe a group of diseases. And if they can, give you the name of the specific subtype. And that way, if you get other opinions or you talk to other people online or at forums like this, you sort of um, come the closest to know exactly what you're talking about. And we're not kind of sometimes talking about two different entities that we might include under the, the title of CTCL. I think once you have a diagnosis or a pretty clear diagnosis, then the next most important thing we look at is what we call stage. Um, stage is really a description of where the lymphoma is and isn't in the body. In people with mycosis, fungoides, and Cesare syndrome, the stage is usually uh, based on um, how much of your skin is involved and the type of skin lesions. So if people have um, very flat red areas on their skin, something that you might call a rash, but something not raised, um, we usually call that a patch. If it's raised above the background, but not raised too high, so something that's more than a little rough, but an elevated skin lesion. So if you close your eyes and rub your hand over it, you can feel a little bit of a, a lumpiness or elevation there. We typically call that a plaque. And if it's really what you might call a lump or a bump or something that's more than a centimeter raised, um, that's something that we call a tumor. 
it's easy to explain these things if you're showing someone. It's a little hard to just do it in words, but those are sort of the three main different types of skin lesions. And based on what type of skin lesions you have and how much of your skin is covered with it, that's a way that we give part of the stage. Um, and as I'll explain in a minute, how we treat this disease is really largely based on what stage you are. Your doctor then would often look for if there's evidence of disease elsewhere in the body, and if it, there is evidence elsewhere, it could either be in the blood, and if there's a lot of it or some in the blood, we might call that Cesare syndrome, and that could change your stage, uh, or if it's in lymph nodes or organs, and, and sometimes that would require a scan or a biopsy. And not everybody with this disease needs a scan or a biopsy, but if you want to look for it outside of the skin, um, then that's usually a CAT scan or a PET scan, and then usually a subsequent biopsy um, to confirm that there is lymphoma outside the, outside the skin or as what's common with CTCL is sometimes when people have lymphoma in the skin, the lymph nodes inside the body can be sort of slightly large or inflamed, more as a reaction to the skin than actually seeing cancer cells in the lymph node. And again, a biopsy of a lymph node would be required uh, to know that. So once you have your diagnosis and your stage, then you start thinking about general ways to take care of it. And there are really, as you'll hear, many, many different treatments and different approaches for this disease. So I'm going to try to at least initially just focus a little more on concepts. Um, in general, this is a slow-growing disease. In general, this is a disease that we try to manage safely over time. Um, to try to keep the person well, keep the disease from being dangerous with them, dangerous to them over time. And that usually means we try to figure out the mildest, safest treatment to accomplish our goals. Uh, in general, we don't cure this disease. When the oncologists use the word cure, they mean that we would give a treatment and that the cancer would go away forever and never come back. And forever means to the end of your life. Go away and never come back, usually without additional therapy. And for the most part, while we have many, many treatments for cutaneous T-cell lymphomas that could get them better or keep them better, we don't really have treatments that reliably would get rid of them forever. Um, although many people are fine with this disease, um, it does tend to come back from time to time. One exception for that, um, and only done in very specific situations, would be something like a bone marrow transplant from another person, which would have the chance of getting rid of it forever. But for most people with CTCL, their disease can be managed much more safely and much better long-term without having to take on really risky therapies. And then when you start thinking about some of the specifics of what type of treatment you'd get, if the disease is just in the skin, then usually the safest treatments are treatments that only affect the skin. And that could be like a, a, a topical, which could be a medicine, a steroid cream or other medicine you put on the skin. There are some chemotherapy medicines that people just put topically on the skin that don't get uh, absorbed. And those are really ideal for people that have some spots of disease, but not disease all over their skin though some people will put topicals all over their skin. In people with more widespread skin disease, we might use ultraviolet light or what we call phototherapy. So again, this is not a medicine that you take uh, inside of your body, but something that you expose the skin to, usually at a dermatologist's office. Sometimes people do this at home. And that's a way of giving ultraviolet light to the skin. And that's a very mild form of actually treating the cancer cells in the skin. It's not just um, making it look better. You, the, the ultraviolet radiation can actually kill some of the cancer cells in the skin. Um, if the skin is um, more severely involved or there's a particular um, few spots that are really resistant to therapy, radiation would be an even stronger form of therapy where you expose the skin to radiation. And that can be very effective at treating uh, spots or even the whole skin 
The difference mainly between radiation and the topicals and the light therapy I talked about is radiation can only be given for a finite dose for a finite amount of time where many people can put medicines on their skin or get ultraviolet light either long-term or on and off really over the course of what, what we hope would be a normal life. If the skin-directed therapies don't control the disease well or there is a disease outside of the skin, inside the body, in the blood, uh, or in lymph nodes, then there's a number of medicines which could be tried. They could be added in with skin-directed therapy. The mildest forms of those are medicines um, that you might take as a pill called a retinoid. There's an injection called interferon, which helps stimulate the body's immune system to fight the lymphoma. Um, there are ways of giving light treatment to the blood, something called extracorporeal photophoresis, and all those are fairly mild treatments. And again, from the oncologist approach, we would say, what's the mildest, safest treatment for your body that could get you feeling better and keep you better over long term? So we like to often start, if it's possible, with these mild treatments um, that are really safe, safe for long-term use um, to try to try them and see if we can get this better with something fairly mild or safe. That often requires a further conversation with your doctor because I think a lot of us think our goal for the patient is that they're well long-term, um, but the patient may say, my skin looks bad, it itches, I'm uncomfortable. And many of our mildest therapies also work slowly. They may take months to really get better, and they may not get the skin better uh, completely, but only get it better partly. And that's sort of an ongoing discussion you have with your doctor. Is this working well enough, fast enough? If yes, great. If not, what are the pros and cons of switching to something that might work faster? Am I taking on more risk or more side effects to get better quicker? And kind of negotiate what's sort of the best long-term uh, solution uh, for the individual. Um, that's mostly uh, what I was going to talk about. There's a number of other treatments, um, medicines called like histone deacetylase inhibitors. There's um, chemotherapy like we use for other lymphomas, which we often are reluctant to use for people with CTCL or at least not use them initially because they tend to have more side effects and often don't give lasting benefit, though in the right situation they can help improve the skin. And there's a number of new and investigational treatments um, that I think uh, uh, Julie Vos will talk about in a minute. Um, but I think with this disease in particular, there's a lot of treatments, but sort of assessing how well those are working and how well you feel is really a partnership between the doctor and the patient. And it's something visit to visit, you sort of discuss um, um, how you're doing, do we want to change, do we want to keep things the same, um, and I will conclude there. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much, Dr. Howitz. That was really outstanding and very comprehensive and a wonderful introduction to the entire call today, so thank you so much, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, um, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Julie Vos. Dr. Vos is Newman M. and Mildred E. Harris Professor Chief of the Oncology Hematology Division, Department of Internal Medicine, University of Nebraska Medical Center, UNMC, and Fred and Pamela Buffett Cancer Center. And she's past president, American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. And Dr. Vos is going to be addressing treatment options to manage relapsed refractory cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, the role of clinical trials, and practical tips to manage side effects and pain. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Vos. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak today. So I think Dr. Horowitz um, really set the stage very well um, in that patients with mycosis fungoides are going to be dealing with this um, over year, period, years of periods of time and most likely have multiple therapies over that time period. We always want to try to reduce the side effects and the risk of any therapy that we're giving 
while keeping in mind um, trying to reduce the burden of the disease, but we don't want to cause more, more harm or more damage uh, with the treatment than as far as treating the mycosis fungoides. So as Dr. Horowitz talked about, um, usually we might start with the simpler treatment, especially if the mycosis fungoides is localized, such as the topical agents, topical steroids or chemotherapy, topical retinoids, or light therapy. And so a lot of times uh, patients may actually be seen by dermatologists before they're seen by the oncologist or in conjunction with the oncologist. And many of these therapies can be started and are started by the, our dermatology colleagues. For uh, therapy to go to the next step, typically the uh, radiation may be an option for patients with localized disease. Or in rare cases, we may use total skin electron beam irradiation, which is radiation that covers much of the skin surface. That's a little bit more for more involved skin lesions that are, are more generalized. Next, uh, typically the systemic therapies would be used if a patient has more extensive mycosis fungoides. And as Dr. Horowitz talked about, we kind of put that into categories of um, things that are a little simpler or less side effects to start with. We always want to try to reduce the toxicity of any treatment that we're doing while trying to, to treat the mycosis fungoides. So the choice of therapies, either the first therapy or multiple subsequent therapies, is important in looking at the, the patient, their, um, how they're feeling, what their overall health is, what their other general health issues are. And we try to uh, work around that, as well as their other medications they may be taking for other purposes, which could interfere or change um, the ability of our, our medicines to work. So kind of the categories that we may use next for a systemic therapy would be things like the um, oral retinoids he talked about, uh, bexerotene or um, similar agents that are utilized um, in oral form. They do sometimes have some side effects we have to watch carefully for. Other agents that are sometimes used as the, the next line of therapy would be uh, the histone deacetylase inhibitors, such as varenostat, which is an oral medication. Again, all these medications, of course, have side effects we need to watch for. And there's also an IV form of the HDAC inhibitor that we sometimes use as well called romadepsin. Methotrexate is an old medication, but we sometimes use that, and it's very uh, reasonable in some patients to use this. And then after these sorts of medications that are uh, pretty well tolerated by patients, uh, perhaps if they're not working or if they work for a while and then, and then fail, then we would go to the next level of treatment, which could be another one in that same category, or going to alternative therapies, um, such as some old-time oral chemotherapies, um, looking at some of our new agents, such as uh, some injectable treatments, um, chemotherapies such as bortezomib, which is a medication that is sometimes used for other forms of lymphoma, we try not to use the more harsh chemotherapy, as uh, Dr. Horowitz discussed, as it, first of all, doesn't work very well, unfortunately, in many of these types of mycosis fungoides, and um, also, of course, has more side effects. One of the big problems we get into with um, some of these therapies, especially chemotherapy, is that it can really cause a lot of damage to um, normal organs or toxicity, but also can cause some of the mycosis lesions to actually open up and be at more risk for infection. So a lot of the treatments that we use, we have to be very careful and work in conjunction with our dermatology colleagues in trying to take good care of the skin and uh, making sure that we decrease the infection risk as much as possible and trying to keep the patient comfortable. Um, 
couple other um, specific types of therapies that I think are very interesting and, and useful for certain patients would be the therapy that he talked about called extracorporeal photophoresis. And this is where we're trying to use light therapy, not against the skin, but actually uh, light therapy on some of the blood cells. And then they're infused back into the patient. So the extracorporeal means outside the body. And photophoresis is exposing the cells to the light therapy after sensitization with some um, oral medication that's taken or in the, in the tube medication. And this type of therapy um, is specifically helpful for certain types of patients that have what's called the Cesare syndrome or where the skin has diffuse redness and also the cells are uh, in the blood as well circulating. So this particular type of therapy is particularly helpful in those types of patients. It is um, sometimes difficult to use in that we have to put in a, a um, catheter, intravenous catheter to use this, and sometimes there's an increased risk of infection. And we also do often combine this photophoresis with uh, additional medications such as the interferon that was talked about, retinoids, or other types of um, therapy as well to help these patients. Um, one of the last categories I want to talk about are a couple of the new medications and then also transplant. So one of the new medications that um, just fairly recently has been approved and, and shown to be more helpful than some of the older medications is um, a monoclonal antibody called brintuximabvidotin. And this is an uh, antibody or protein that is given in the vein. And then attached to that uh, antibody is a chemotherapy-like molecule. The antibody takes the um, chemotherapy-like molecule directly to the T cells, and it attaches to a protein on the surface of the T cells called CD30. So this antibody is an anti-CD30 antibody. This medication has been approved for other types of lymphomas for um, several years now, but fairly recently was shown in a clinical trial to have uh, additional benefit over some of our older types of, of therapy. And so for certain patients who are CD30 positive on their tumor, uh, this particular therapy can be something that uh, can be very beneficial. Um, the medication is uh, typically given in cycles about every three weeks, and um, sometimes the side effects can be um, important, such as uh, peripheral neuropathy or numbness or tingling of your fingers or toes, but typically patients actually respond quite well to this, and they also um, have uh, side effects that are, are moderate, moderate or modest. Another new medication that's not available yet but um, looks very promising in trials is called mogaluzumab. And this medication also has an interesting background. It, it, it's an uh, antibody that is against a what we call a chemokine, CCR4. And this was actually first developed in Japan several years ago for a different type of T-cell lymphoma called adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma. More recently, uh, it has been tested in clinical trials for patients with mycosis fungoides and does look promising, and we're hopeful that this may be available uh, perhaps yet this year in the fall sometime. These uh, agents are typically used uh, as single agents, but I'm sure that clinical trials in the future will be combining these with other agents as well. Uh, one last treatment I want to talk about that's important is a what we call allogeneic transplant, and that's where we use cells from another person, a donor, either a relative or an unrelated person, that actually replace the, the blood and immune system of the patient, in this case with mycosis fungoides. This is a treatment that's um, able to be used only in 
fairly young and fit patients who have you know, gone through the regular treatments and they're not working uh, or not working successfully enough. And uh, in this case, we use uh, skin radiation and combined with chemotherapy. And then the person uh, gets these cells from the donor. This is a very complicated type of treatment. Um, patient has to be immunosuppressed or makes them at risk for infections. And um, does, however, work in a small percentage of patients uh, with this very difficult treatment. So not for everyone, but um, perhaps for some selected patients, this may be an option. As far as clinical trials, um, really all the therapies that we have talked about came to us because they were tested in clinical trials. So every therapy for any type of, of cancer, in this case mycosis fungoides, is tested against kind of the standard of care for that disease, and then we get new therapies uh, approved by the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, for use of that disease. Also, clinical trials are very important for us for combining therapies. Many of these have side effects, and we have to combine them safely. So clinical trials are a way to be able to combine those safely and to evaluate the side effects of uh, therapies that we use for, for patients, in, in this case for mycosis fungoides. So certainly we always encourage participation in clinical trials where we're trying to gather information and not only help you, but also help future patients with the same disease. Thankfully, um, patients in the, past, in the past have participated in trials, and that's why we have many of the therapies that we have today. Not all clinical trials are available locally, and um, especially for such a rare disease. One may have to look at different cancer centers or different locations, and certainly your healthcare team can help you with that in trying to find one that may be appropriate in your situation. As far as managing side effects and, and pain, I would say the first thing we really need to remember is to work with your healthcare team Make sure that they know all the side effects and problems that you may be having, either from your disease or from your treatment. Even though it may seem not that important to you or, or something that you've had for a while, it's important to make sure that your healthcare team knows about the signs or symptoms or problems that you're having because there may be many other types of therapies or even topical agents that we can help and try to decrease the side effects of, of the management of the pain or side effects that you're having. We also work in um, teams with not only the medical oncologist, but the dermatologist, radiation oncology, and particularly with patients with mycosis fungoides, we, we um, see the patients on a frequent basis, look for any side effects that they're having or pain, look for new lesions on the skin or other locations, and may need to, to change the therapy based upon that information. Uh, definitely pain management and itching is, is a common issue. And we have to work with some of the medications to try to, to help with that, either through topical agents on the skin or with systemic agents to try to help with itching um, or with pain management. So be sure to work with your healthcare team upon that. And don't, don't keep any secrets because it, uh, it's not really going to help you in the long run. So um, I'm sure we'll be having lots of questions later on, but um, that's kind of a top-level look of some of the therapies that we have currently available. Thanks, Carolyn. Well. Thank you very much, Dr. Voss. That was really outstanding and um, just really incredibly informative, covering a lot of different areas. And I know there'll be questions for you as well during the, the Q&A. And our next speaker is Ms. Susan Thornton, and she is the CEO of the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. We're delighted to have her on board today, actually, to speak to all of you. It's a wonderful resource. Some of you actually may already be using that resource, but if you're not, 
I'm going to turn this program over to Ms. Thornton, who will explain to you all of the different the programs and services of the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. Ms. Thornton, my esteemed Great. colleague. Thank you, uh, Dr. Messner, and thank you to our partner, Cancer Care, for hosting this wonderful webinar today. It was a fabulous uh, overview and insights into cutaneous lymphoma, which, as many of you probably know, can be uh, a challenging disease and sometimes hard to wrap your head around because it doesn't fit into a lot of the traditional um, types of cancers that we're all aware of. And I'd like to say that the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation was founded 20 years ago by a patient and for the purpose of supporting people living with cutaneous lymphoma specifically. And we offer a variety of programs and services. I think one of the best places to start is on our website. We have a wide variety of information about the disease, all the different subtypes, uh, treatments. We have a section that lists the major treatment centers around the world that have specialists like Dr. Horowitz and Dr. Vos that treat cutaneous lymphomas. Um, so you can find a specialty center near you. We also list clinical trials that are open to the best of our capacity. We don't have all of them, but it's a very good place to start. Um, and there are videos, there are patient videos, there are videos from the specialists in the field that talk about specific items. Um, in addition to the website, we also offer live patient educational programs around the country, and you can find a list of those on the website as well. And we offer those um, in person and live stream, so you can actually participate in those programs from home if you can't come physically to the programs. And this year we added uh, monthly Facebook Live interviews with experts in, on a specific topic. So um, we just finished one with Dr. Akalov from the University of Pittsburgh uh, last week that talked about uh, skin care and skin management. And we put those on our YouTube channel so you can watch them later as well. And um, in addition to our publications and our newsletter and uh, all of those good things to try to keep everyone who's living with cutaneous lymphoma informed and empowered as they go through their journey. And um, I'll put in a plug for our upcoming two-day patient conference that's being held in Bethesda, Maryland next weekend, the 23rd and 24th. Uh, it's a great opportunity to dive deeper into two days full of all different kinds of presentations and programs specific to cutaneous lymphoma, but also some that talk about um, navigating the health system and some other things that we all face in living with any kind of disease. Uh, and I will say, and an opportunity to connect with other patients and um, share your stories. And I think there's something empowering about knowing that you're not the only person out there living with this rare rare disease. And I will say Dr. Horowitz will be with us on Saturday. So um, if you can uh, come down and join us or join us on the live stream, uh, you'll learn a little bit more than we had the time for today. So again, thank you so much to our partner Cancer Care for hosting, and I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Susan. That was wonderful. And, and actually, we should have that live link so we can give it to people or that information. Um, they'll go right to your website. We have your website. We'll give to the because I should say to everyone that after the after today's program, we will immediately send you within a day to the evaluation, and you'll be able to get any resources that we offer during the program. So um, we'll, um, it'll take you to the um, to the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation website where you can um, access that information. Sounds like a great conference. So thank you. Thanks. 
Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Susan Kelly, Ms. Uh, Sarah Kelly, and Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she's a clinical supervisor here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Kelly is going to be presenting Cancer Care's programs and services, um, our psychosocial programs and services, and also um, the role of support groups. It's really now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'd like to thank everyone on the call. It's been a really good call today, and we've gotten a lot of great information. So we've been talking today um, really about your diagnosis, managing your care, and at the end of the day, your quality of life. And I'd like to begin by speaking about the importance of creating a support network as part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. So just a little about us, we are a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling, we provide that face-to-face -face in the New York area and then over the phone nationally. We have support groups which we provide face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally, and then online both nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. We also provide practical help, so assistance navigating the healthcare system as well as some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and they're completely free of charge. And an oncology social worker really is trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so how, how it affects the whole support network. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, so financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and overall psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and uh, finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all of the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. You know, as you know, cancer doesn't just affect um, your body, it affects your whole person, your support network, um, really your life, and so getting supports as you're going through it can be incredibly helpful and is really just a sign of strength. You know, I cannot stress enough to you that you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to walk the path alone. If you're joining a support group, you're connecting with others who are going through a similar situation, which I know uh, Ms. Thornton spoke of. And then with the individual counseling, you really have a space that's yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections also, I feel, help lessen the isolation um, that many people with cancer experience, and especially with a rarer cancer. And so feeling well emotionally can help you better navigate um, the diagnosis and treatment and care. At this time, um, we provide, as I said, all of those services that I mentioned earlier. We also have an online support group for anyone who's diagnosed with a blood cancer, so know that that's available to you. And then we have, of course, patient and caregiver groups face-to-face -face in the New York area and then on the phone uh, nationally. If you're interested in any of our services, um, call us. You can reach us on our HOPE line, and that's 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673. Or visit our website, uh, and that's www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You'll find information not only on support, but on all of our programs, as well as your diagnosis and treatment and just ways of navigating all of this. 
you know, we've learned a lot, I feel, from today's program. It's a lot of information to digest and get your arms around. Just know that our social workers are here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. And if you have any questions about our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And then just lastly, please remember you're not alone in this. Um, Cancer Care Services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Kelly. That was really really wonderful and uh, just wonderful resources, the way you identified everything that people can access. So in terms of psychosocial concerns, people can contact Cancer Care, and you also have the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. You have wonderful resources at your fingertips. So that's really important for everybody on the call today. And, of course, your healthcare team, your oncologist and your whole team, your hematology oncologist, they're there for you as well. So now we do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, Ayala to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and if we don't get your questions at the very end of the call, I will explain to all of you how to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. So here's the chance. Okay, Ayala. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. Okay, and there's a question from one of our online participants. Um, and um, I'm going to ask um, Dr. Horowitz to start to address this question two questions actually here. So the first one is, what are the causative factors for mycosis fungoides? Why is it considered a rare and uncommon cancer? And number two, is edema a side effect of photo, phototherapy, UV, UVD therapy? Okay. Thank you for that question. Actually, I had written down to talk about that, and I skipped over it in my presentation, so I appreciate that. Um, so we don't know what causes cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and that means um, there have been no um, studies definitely associating it with any environmental exposures or any uh, genetic risk or predisposition. So the official answer is we don't know what causes it which also means we don't know for sure what doesn't cause it. But in general, we don't see it with typical kinds of chemical or radiation exposure, and we don't see it run in families. So we think the likelihood that it's a common exposure or a risk factor that you would inherit from your parents and like that we think is, is quite low because we don't see it. Uh, the definition of an uncommon or rare cancer is really based on how many people have it. So our best estimates are uh, between two to 3,000 people a year in the United States get diagnosed with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So that would make it very, very uncommon or very, or very rare. Other cancers may be a current 50 or 100,000 people a year. Um, but because people often are okay with this, um, even though they may need treatment, there are many more people than that who have it because people uh, can, of course, live a very long time uh, or, or a normal amount of time uh, with this illness. Uh, so there are people you can find uh, who have it, um, but that's just the definition of rare. Um, I would say for swelling for phototherapy is not so common. Sometimes with radiation therapy where there is a little stronger damage, a little more potent therapy, you will see some swelling in the skin as a reaction to injury. Usually with phototherapy like ultraviolet light, unless there's a burn, there's not uh, particularly swelling. Though the skin may be red or a little bit tender, shouldn't be frankly burned or blistering uh, after that. So that, that wouldn't be a, a, a common side effect of that. Excellent. Um, Dr. Um, Folks, did you want to comment as well? Or? 
No, I think he uh, he addressed all those issues. Um, and we have another question from one of our um, online participants. Um, so, um, for Dr. Vos, when is it appropriate to continue with only watchful waiting for mycosis fungoides before starting any treatment? Yes. So, many times we don't necessarily um, start any therapy right away if the patient has you know, disease that's localized or is a, just in the patch stage and doesn't have very many areas, uh, may be very appropriate to watch that or just use topical steroids, certainly. Um, and so that can that can go on for actually a number of years before it needs any, any you know, additional therapy. So pretty common that we do watch and wait for some of these patients. Um, then, Dr. Horowitz, do you want to comment on that as well? Or? Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's mostly like that because, um, you know, you, um, if if the disease is in dangerous or presenting, uh, you know, rapid progression, which would be very uncommon for this disease, then then watching is okay. Many patients will get mild skin treatments, you know, topical steroid things to to reduce itch or or make them feel a little better. Um, but uh, certainly holding off on systemic or stronger therapies is very common for early stages of this disease. Thank you. And um, another question for Dr. Hawessa. Taking baths have always been a way to help me de-stress. Will I be able to take baths now that I am diagnosed with CTCL? Uh, yes, I'm a big fan of bathing in general, so I think you should uh, continue to bathe. I, I think for people with skin involvement, uh, there's sort of two issues. One is that either like hot water or bathing frequently can dry out the skin. So if you like to bathe and de-stress, I think you just want to make sure you moisturize after. I'm not a dermatologist, but I work with a lot of dermatologists. But many of our patients, after a bath, will put on a moisturizer. The greasier, the better in terms of more more moisture, something like a Vaseline or sometimes even steroids after that. And if you put that on um, before you really dry off, you can keep the skin moist. If frequent bathing or long baths is really drying out your skin, then you may have to limit that a little bit. Um, but otherwise, it, it should be okay to do. Excellent. And actually, Ms. Kelly, do you want to comment on just the concept of de-stressing in general, just because I think that is an issue that comes up a lot. And, and in addition to bathing, are there other things that people can do, other techniques that people can use to kind of um, to kind of relax or to kind of de-stress from the, the treatment experience? Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is, of course, getting support and reaching out for support. See so someone to talk to about all of this so you're not just sort of processing it and doing it on your own. Um, I think like a very sort of quick fix, especially if you're feeling your stress kind of rising and going up, is just taking a moment to reground yourself. A very easy way of doing it is breathing. Um, and it may sound silly, but I think oftentimes we get stuck in our heads and we forget that we're a body um, that does need to breathe. And our breathing changes when we're stressed. So just taking a moment um, to breathe in and just really focus on that and breathe out, focusing on that. And you can count like four in and then maybe six out, um, really whatever feels most comfortable for you. But the idea is slowing the breathing down to kind of bring everything back down and ground yourself a bit. And that's just a very quick way of de-stressing. Oh, thank you. Thanks. That's excellent. And um, another question from our online participants, um, actually, um, and this one would be for um, Dr. Horowitz, is gabapentin appropriate to control itching? How high a dose is safe? 
Um, yeah, it's it is one of the, the the most difficult symptoms for this, and and I think in general we have a number of medicines that can treat itch. In my experience, it's hard to get the itch all the way better unless you really get the disease better, but a lot of these medicines can help. So gabapentin, uh, which is actually used as an anti-seizure medicine or for nerve injury, um, can work quite well for some people with itching. Uh, we usually start off at a fairly low dose, but people can go can go to a quite high dose with the limit being really sedation or being tired or feeling sleepy. So often we'll start people at 100 milligrams two or three times a day or 300 milligrams two or three times a day, but you can really go up quite high. I, um, I think the maximum dose is maybe some people take as much as 3,600 milligrams a day, um, but that should not be started like that. You should work with your doctor and go up in a stepwise fashion until you either get itch relief or if you're hitting some of the side effects of gabapentin, then, then don't escalate beyond that. And, and Dr. Voss, do you want to comment as well? Yes, um, certainly gabapentin is one, um, as Dr. Horowitz said, of many different drugs that we try. And I think the important thing is that what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. So we do have to sometimes try different things and different doses uh, to see to decide if it works or not. And so, and some patience is really important. Awesome. And we have a telephone question, so we'll take that one next, Ayala. Our telephone question comes from Joe P. Your line is now open. Yes, hi. I was wondering, uh, could you run down the treatments for uh, primary cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma? Could you just repeat that one more time? What are the treatments for PCALCL? Um, and um, Dr. Hortz, are you able to address that, that question? Yeah, and we didn't talk a lot about this. Cutaneous anaplastic large cell lymphoma is another subtype, an even less common subtype of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, so for people that have a single spot of that, and, and these more often would be tumors than a flat rash, uh, we would frequently use radiation. If people have uh, multiple spots, there's a very good uh, activity with brentuximab, vedotin, targeted to the CD30 that Dr. Vose talked about. Um, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, by definition, has that CD marker very strongly on the surface. Um, and then other things we use, we often borrow either from mycosis fungoides, things like retinoids or, um, or a methotrexate to try to uh, reduce the frequency of those coming, or in the very rare cases of cutaneous ALCL where it gets more, um, uh, either grows faster or spreads inside the body, then we use more combination chemotherapy. Um, but it's sort of a range based on, on how it's presenting in the person with particularly good activity of brentuximab vedotin. Excellent, thank you. And another online question for Dr. Vos. Um, is there an average time frame on when to expect seeing results with phototherapy UVB in in stage 1B? Good results with phototherapy means what? Um, do the patches, plaques actually go away or simply fade but are still there? Um, if you could address this in a general way, Dr. Rose, that would be sure. helpful to me. So uh, phototherapy um, works in general fairly slowly. So we don't expect really to see um, results right away. And also we start phototherapy at a fairly low dose because we don't want to cause problems with um, sunburn or other side effects and then sometimes work uh, work up the dose over time. So in general, it's a little bit of a slower process. I would say most patients don't completely have all, everything go away but see improvement over time, and by over time I mean months. Um, and we often can 
decrease the frequency of the treatments, and patients continue to get maybe less frequent treatments over um, even years, depending on the disease amount and their response to that. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Horowitz, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I think that was well covered. Okay. okay. And there's another question from one of our online participants. Um, for Dr. Horowitz, then, um, how does the phototherapy UV lighting actually work with respect to T cells and achieving remission? Yeah, so um, the T cells for many people with mycosis lungoids are very near the surface of the skin. Words you use called like epidermotropic, meaning it's right up near the top layer of skin. And the ultraviolet light can penetrate there. It can actually cause some damage to the DNA of the white blood cells or the lymphocytes or the lymphoma cells in the skin, which are very sensitive to, you know, a, a very low form of ultraviolet radiation. And then when that cell, those cells are damaged, when they go on to try to divide, they die. So it actually kills the cells in the surface of the skin. Um, most, and that's how it would get the lymphoma better. It won't be effective, particularly for lymphoma inside the body or sometimes people that have very thick tumors or deep lesions. The ultraviolet light just doesn't penetrate deep enough. Um, uh, but in people with, with uh, more flat lesions on the surface, it, it can really be very effective for many people. Thank you. Um, and, um, and Dr. Vos, do you want to add anything? Or? Nope, I think that was very well covered. Okay. okay, excellent. Okay, and then another online question. Uh, this one's for Dr. Vos. Um, are there clinical trials specific for CTCL, or should I join a non-Hodgkin lymphoma clinical trial? Um, so there, there are both. Uh, there certainly are some clinical trials specifically for mycosis fungoides or Cesare syndrome, and um, in general, those would be more specific uh, to to that illness. There are, however, not as many clinical trials for that as it is such a rare disease. On occasion, some clinical trials will also include patients with mycosis fungoides, although um, not as often because it's really considered a, a separate disease. So probably the best would be to look for um, trials that specifically do include mycosis fungoides patients or are separate for that patient population, uh, as it is often a different type of uh, treatment that's given. Um, and uh, another question, um, and this one for um, Dr. Horowitz. Is CTCL limited to the skin, or does it progress to multiple organs, organ involvement? So, so CTCL, true CTCL, would start in the skin um, uh, in almost everybody, and that's, that's sort of part of the definition of disease. And in most people, it may come and go over their lifetime, but it would just stay confined to the skin. Less commonly, but not impossible, it can grow outside the skin, either in the blood or lymph nodes and organs, um, and then needs to be treated with more than just just treatment directed at the skin. But most people, it's only in the skin. Excellent. Thank you. And then another online question um, for Dr. Vos. Um, do dermatologists treat CTCLL, or who would be the best person to go to for treatment for CTCL? So um, we really share the treatment with uh, dermatologists and medical oncologists and radiation oncologists. So this is a, a disease that you may see any of those uh, physicians over the time that a person has a disease. I would say most commonly uh, a person before they have a diagnosis uh, does go to a dermatologist and they may do a biopsy and get the diagnosis. If it's a fairly localized uh, mycosis fungoides, dermatologists often do some of the simpler treats, treatments we talk about, such as topical treatments. 
if a person needs uh, systemic therapy or radiation therapy or any of the drugs that we talked about, typically the dermatologists do not do those, and then the patient would be referred uh, to the medical oncologist or radiation oncologist for those. Thank you. Um, these are wonderful questions, really uh, incredibly uh, um, a lot of good questions from this audience today and wonderful speakers as well. Um, so um, here is another question, um, this one for um, for Dr. Horwitz. My son was diagnosed with CTCL, and he is very self-conscious of how he looks. Are the treatments that can minimize, help minimize the appearance of the rash? Yeah, no, that's a tough one. So, so any of the treatments that work will get the rash better, and it usually becomes less red or flatter. There is sometimes a situation um, where we call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, where even after you get rid of the lymphoma, there may be some sort of brownish or scarring color in the skin, and, so, and, and that can sometimes take a long time to get better. Um, I've not seen a lot of great effect with um, sort of fading creams or bleaching or things like that, but if it was purely cosmetic, meaning the lymphoma was treated, but the lesions were still there, then uh, that's something to talk about with a dermatologist. I, I think this is also a challenge, you know, really for anybody, but including young people, because sort of our safest, mildest treatments don't work so fast, and we want you to be safe and healthy and not have bad side effects of treatment, but that often means, you know, trying to have some patients uh, going through it um, while your skin gets better, you know, and, and particularly in summertime or depending where it is on your body, uh, it, it can really be a big issue. Um, I don't have any magic solutions other than, you know, you want to work towards getting the best treatment. Um, I think support groups and talking to people and kind of having shared experience is really helpful. I'm not a huge fan of giving more aggressive or toxic therapies um, to uh, speed the, the response um, because of um, being self-conscious, but being self-conscious is, is a real symptom. So that's something that, you know, kind of you negotiate and talk about the pros and cons with your doctor if, if that's really a significant effect on your quality of life. And, and we do sometimes factor that into uh, to the treatments we give. Thank you so much. And, and Ms. Cole, do you want to comment on just um, the concepts of one, how one feels in one's self-image and, and undergoing treatment uh, like this? Or... Absolutely. You know, I think Dr. Horowitz was spot on just talking about um, the self-consciousness and also just the changes that happen when you're diagnosed and in treatment. Uh, it's, it's a lot to adjust to. I think um, what Dr. Horowitz said about getting support and support groups, that's when that can be incredibly helpful. So you can actually be with other people who are going through it. Um, so they know what it's like, let's say it's summertime, to have to go outside and to have these very noticeable changes in your skin. So I think talking with your doctor about it, getting support, and finding ways um, also that work for you just in, in your day-to-day -day life. What, where, how do you feel most comfortable? Um, is it sort of changing um, maybe what you're wearing or, you know, there, there's different things you can do. But I, I do think this is one of those um, situations where, A, talking with your medical team is helpful, and, B, talking with others who are going through it is going to help. And Dr. Post, do you also want to add something as well? Yeah, I, th I think it's important to um, get a support team for for the patient and make sure the the patient has uh, family and friends that are helpful with those types of things and can be very supportive and help them through difficult situations and really everything else uh, that was discussed today. 
important to um, make sure that they understand their their body image is certainly important, but what's most important is, uh, of course, what's inside a person. Thank you. That's, thank you, Al. That's really, uh, I hope that's helpful then to our call, and I hope you'll take that information um, back to your healthcare team. There may be a support system in the in the medical center where you're going for your care. You may also reach out to um, cancer care, to other organizations that could be of help to you in, in, in coping. It's really important to get that support. Um, and another question um, for, um, uh, for Dr. Foz. Um, my family has a history of eczema, and I started to develop a rash. Should I be worried about CTCL? Well, sometimes it, it, eczema um, and CTCL can look very similar, uh, certainly at the beginning of the disease. And so that often leads to multiple biopsies over time, and um, that's something that does need to be watched. doesn't necessarily mean because you have eczema or your family has eczema that you have an increased risk of CTCL. It's just that it is um, sometimes a bit confusing because the rashes do look alike. So good care with a, a dermatologist and uh, making sure uh, adequate follow-up and, and biopsies and care are done would be the most important. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and... Um and this will be probably our last question after Dr. Horowitz. Thank you. Um, my specialist said that I only need to see him every six months because it is a slow-growing lymphoma at an early stage. Is there a possibility of it changing to a fast-growing lymphoma? Um, yeah, I mean, it, that is true for most people. It's a slow-growing lymphoma, particularly at early stages. Um, uh, there are uh, uncommon cases where it changes to a faster-growing lymphoma. Though with this disease, the skin is, is almost always the marker for how the disease is doing. So we may not see people that frequently, but they see themselves every day. So um, in the rare case it changed to a faster-growing lymphoma, you would notice um, many new spots or enlarging spots or lumps growing on your body, and, 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 and most people would then just call and be seen sooner. So that can happen, but it, it's quite uncommon, and it is something that almost always the patient would notice first. It's not something that we would notice that was sort of uh, unseen to, to you, um, um, to the patient. Excellent. And Dr. Host, do you want to add anything to that? Nope, I think he covered that very well. So really the importance of each of you and in this whole process as well. That's really wonderful. This is well I have to say I want to thank our speakers. You've been extraordinary. I also want to thank all of you who've asked such really great questions. Um and really it helps to really um it really enhances the call with all of your excellent questions. Now I did say that I know there are many more people who have questions, so I actually wanted to kinda of say what to do to get your questions answered. So, of course, your healthcare team is a wonderful place to start. There's no question about that. Um, but I know many of you like to find other places. And so um, I guess I want to give a special call out to the Cutaneous Lymphoma Foundation. Um, and we will be sending you both, again, their website and their 800 number so that you can actually contact them um, and, um, and work with them if you have any questions or need information or just that it's a fountain of information. They also have an upcoming conference, so that will be on their website as well. Um, we also often give people information about the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a toll-free number, um, 1-800-422-6237. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov. And that website happens to have a live chat feature. So for people both in the U.S. and internationally, you can post your question on their website, and their information specialist will get back to you with lots of information that you can then take back to your treating healthcare team. 
so that um, there are, I guess the most important thing is that there are a lot of resources out there for you to get your questions answered, but also your healthcare team, of course, knows you the best, and so whatever you even learn today from the program, any questions you may have asked or would like to ask, you really go back to your healthcare team, and you can see by our, by our speakers today how really eager people are to answer your questions. It's really important. And I, I guess the other takeaway, really important, is if you notice some change or something different, really don't be hesitant to call your physician's office. That's really important. I know many of you live a very far distance from your healthcare team, different parts of the country, um, and you know um, you don't have to wait till the next appointment if you notice something. That's really important. It comes up in a lot of our programs. I just want to re-stress that again today. Um, so I actually want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, I also want to mention that we have two programs coming up that could be of interest to you. One is on cancer survivorship, um, which will be occurring on June 19th, the same time as this one. And the other one is on clinical trials for blood cancers, which will be occurring on June 19th, but a different time, actually, from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. So you'll be getting information about those programs as well. As well. But most importantly, we don't want any one of you to feel alone when this program ends. Um, so we want you to feel that you're now part of a whole community of support. We're here to help you. And there are so many organizations out there. Um, we have listed many of them on the brochures and on our website for you to have. Also, if you feel like you'd want to listen to the program again, it is available both on telephone replay as well as a podcast, and that continues for at least a year, if not longer, so that you can access it 24 hours a day. Um, 365 days a year, so don't hesitate to listen again if you want to. And again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.